Make sure you inflate that beach ball because today we're diving into the card pool. I'm your host, Kyle Robertson. And I'm Stu Galetta. And today we're talking about the top 10 money cards of Cons of Tarkir. This is part two of our two-part set review. Be sure to check out our previous in which we discussed the top 10 hidden gems that we found in this set. But without further ado, let's start the review. So starting our list hot and fresh as number one are the fetch lands that we see. Now it's a little too blatant to go into any one land in particular, but you can get these cards from a variety of anywhere from $12 to $18. Needless to say, there's a variety of reasons why the fetch lands are good. Pretty much the easiest is fixing your mana at a very easy and low cost. Yeah, there's really not a whole lot to say about these. They all kind of follow the same template, which is you tap it, you pay one life, you sacrifice it, and you search your deck for some type of card with a basic land type. Now, as I'm pretty sure I don't have to tell people, the real value of these cards comes in the fact that you don't actually have to search for basic lands. You can search for dual lands with a basic land type, most notably the shock lands from the Ravnica blocks. Not really too much to say about these cards other than the fact that if you can fit them in your deck, you probably should run them just because they are that good. That's why there's so much money. They help you fix your mana. They're played pretty much everywhere and good pretty much everywhere. Now, moving right along, I guess we'll move past these five fetch lands and go into some cards that are actually a little bit different. And it probably shouldn't be that much of a surprise that Planeswalkers are toward the top of the list. So our number two most expensive card here is Soren Solemn Visitor. Now, he is a four-mana Planeswalker, two mana, and then a black and a white. He starts with four loyalty. He has three abilities, of course. Plus one until your next turn, creatures you control get plus one, plus oh, and gain lifelink. Also, minus two, put a two-two black vampire creature token with flying into play. And then his ultimate is minus six. You get an emblem with, at the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, that player sacrifices a creature. I think this Soren is probably, in the grand scheme of things, weaker than Soren Lord of Innistrad from the original Innistrad block, who is also this cost and these colors, only because that Soren's boost is in the form of an emblem, which makes it permanent. This one's is only temporary. This one, though, while it is a minus ability to make the tokens, does make bigger tokens that actually have flying. And the little kind of Grave Pacty type ultimate isn't too bad either. Like I said, overall, I think this is one of the weaker Sorens available, but still, it can be pretty good for the right sort of deck. And he does do a couple of things that most Planeswalkers have to meet as a staple. Has a decent enough loyalty that goes with the cost. It produces something to make it so it has a chump blocker to protect it. And its overall ultimate isn't too hard for it to get to. Like, I mean, if it's late game, you have creatures on the field, plus one, get them up to six as fast as you can. If you're hurting, you're able to still make some sort of problem for your opponent, so he is going to be a target. And so how much money does this one weigh in at, Stu? As of right now, this one's going for a big old Abraham Lincoln of $5. Yeah, I think that pretty much fits. I mean, I wouldn't say anything over that in terms of this card, and I don't think it's really played in any sort of eternal format. But, you know, casual people, it's another Soren. It's a pretty good one. Now, going into our number three spot for the lovely price of $4, and four mana, actually, we have Clever Impersonator. He costs two generic and double blue, and he is a shapeshifter. You may have Clever Impersonator enter the battlefield as a copy of any non-land permanent on the battlefield. 
So a reason why this card is very, very good is it's like most other clone creatures. And when I say clone creatures, when they enter the battlefield, they become a copy of some sort of permanent. Well, in most cases, it's just a creature, maybe an artifact. But the great thing about Clever Impersonator is that he can really target almost anything that isn't a land. We're talking artifacts, enchantments, planeswalkers even, and pretty much any creature. So the value on this guy is really, really good. I cannot say enough good things about Clever Impersonator, but I think I'll just sum it up by saying best clone ever. This is, without a doubt, the best clone variant that has ever been printed up until now for all of the reasons you just described. And it has the wonderful cost of four mana, which is where most clones end up weighing in at. And really, you could not get more bang for your buck. This card is fantastic. So now going into our number four slot, I'm going to give you the one card that I definitely can't pronounce, Kyle. Okay, all right, all right. Going into number four, we have Anafenza, the foremost. She is probably the only legend that we didn't actually talk about to some extent in our own segment. But she costs three to play uh, of the Abzan colors, which means she is white, black, and green. Weighs in at 4-4 for a legendary human soldier, which is pretty nice stats when you think about it. Whenever Anafenza attacks, you put a plus one, plus one counter on a different target tapped creature you control. And then the big money here is the second effect. If a creature card will be put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead. Again, I don't really have too much to say about this card. Like I was saying, the real money is because it is an undercosted beater. While it may only be able to boost other creatures, there are plenty of synergies available that you can use this in. But the real bang for your buck here is the Grave Hate ability. And it makes this card a real force to be reckoned with in Commander. And you can pretty much guarantee that if somebody's playing this as their Commander, everyone else is going to groan. This card right here I really do like. It would be a great addition to the 99 in, the, in any Rayhan deck, just for the boost of putting counters out. Plus, I mean, it's not too hard to make it so it could work with any of the other partners so that this guy could totally, totally fit in there. Um, yeah, like you're saying, Kyle, not too much more to talk about him. So let's go right on to our number five slot. So for $2, you can get this lovely one-drop green enchantment called Hardened Scales. In short, what this thing does is if you would have a counter placed on any creature you control, it would get an additional counter with it instead. So... Really good synergies for this, especially for one mana. Works for any Rayhan deck, any deck that loves counters. It's essentially doing a one-sided doubling season effect. So if you really need to double down on the counters and you need to do more of a budget option, this is a really, really good card for you to possess. Again, this is another card that I just super duper like from this set. Now we should note that it only doubles, or doesn't even really double, but it only affects plus one, plus one counters. And as you were saying, it doesn't really double, it just puts one more counter on. So if you were to put three counters on something, it wouldn't put six on, it would put four on rather than three. So not quite as good as doubling season overall, but for a one drop, you really can't beat the kind of utility that this card brings to the table. And heck, this card's even getting played in modern now, which I never thought would happen. So there is a possibility that it could go above its current price tag, so get these while you can. Speaking of low-cost cards, we're going to move on now to a red one-drop. Stu, you want to tell us about this one? This is Monastery Swift Spear. It is a one-drop red creature, human monk. It has haste, prowess, and is a one-two. So right there, it already passes the vanilla test. It has great speed as soon as it hits the ground, and it can get big. 
I personally would mainly see this car going in standard or modern, when, or, I mean, if you're drafting, yeah, you'd want to grab this card, especially for running red. But for me personally, I really wouldn't see this card in most traditional commander decks, unless you're maybe running Alesha, who can keep bringing this card out onto the battlefield, or if you want some sort of recursion. Yeah, the reason this card commands such a price tag as it does just for an uncommon is because it is played in modern. Just for the fact that it is a one-drop that has haste and good stats that can get bigger, the reason prowess is so great is because what does red do? Play lots of burn spells. And what does Monastery Swift Spear do? Get bigger when you play lots of burn spells. So this is an essential ingredient to any aggressive red deck in competitive formats, and that's why it is one of the money cards of this set. Now, moving right along, we are actually going to go to another red card and another Planeswalker. So coming in next at number seven here, we have Sarkon the Dragon Speaker. Now, this is not a Planeswalker for everybody, but it's one that I personally kind of like. So he is a five-drop Planeswalker, three and double red, um, until the end of the turn, as his plus one ability, Sarkon can become a legendary 4-4 red dragon creature with flying and indestructible and haste. Now, he starts with four loyalty, I should also mention that. His second ability is minus three to do four damage to target creature. Solid removal ability right there. His ultimate is kind of interesting because it's minus six. You get an emblem with, at the beginning of your draw step, draw two additional cards... And at the beginning of your end step, discard your hand. So that just, let's just digest this card a little bit for a moment. On the plus ability, turns into a solid threat, flying indestructible haste. It's pretty good. And a relevant creature type, a dragon. The minus three is not the greatest removal ability in the world, but it can still take out most dangerous creatures. And then looking at the ultimate... This is not necessarily a Planeswalker you want to ultimate with all the time, but that kind of ability can, again, be very useful in the right kind of decks. And hey, drawing three cards a turn, that's not really that bad, especially when you're a red deck and you probably played out your whole hand anyway. Yeah, exactly. Like, as you said, this guy can be a little bit on the janky side, and that's what warrants his price. Right now, he's going for a, a buck sixty, but I mean, you can see, like, where he would fit into certain niche decks. Like, the first thing is I would want to put him into the new red god that we've seen from Amonkhet, the one that doesn't like to have cards in its hand. So having that ultimate makes it so that that guy can constantly be online for both a blocker and an attacker. But everything else, like you said, plus one, it pretty much has like a very similar to a Gideon effect where it becomes alive and can start swinging in for damage. And I mean, heck, having Lightning Bolt on a stick that you can recur, that's value right there. I would love to be able to constantly keep flinging and poking things per turn. Now, moving on to the next one, we kind of have one of the former format all-stars. You want to talk about this one, Stu? Yes, we have the old favorite of Siege Rhino. He costs one in Abzon. Uh, he is a 4-5 with Trample, and when he enters the battlefield, each opponent loses three life, and you gain three life. For your mana, you're pretty much getting your bang for the buck, and he's not impossible to bring out. Now, Commander play might not see this unless you're trying to go for a Tribal Rhino strategy, which I would love to see. Um, but, I mean, this guy is pretty good. I personally couldn't run it in everything, but there are places where he does shine. Now, this card used to be a heck of a lot more expensive than it is now because this was a former standard all-star, and it is kind of seeing a little bit of play in modern as well in a utility sense. 
but you can see kind of why. While this isn't necessarily for us commander players anything flashy on the face of it, this thing gets the job done. A 4-5 with trample for 4 that creates a 6-point life swing just by entering the battlefield? I mean, come on, that is just pure power right there, and this card was probably almost too good when it was first printed. Yeah, I, I remember hearing a lot of stories about people being like, and then the Rhino came. It was literally something out of James and the Giant Peach. <laughs> now, swinging in at our number nine slot, we have for a buck 40, a Boros card called Deflecting Palm. It's an instant, so pretty much for one red and one white, the next time a source of your choice would deal damage to you this turn, prevent that damage. If damage is prevented that way, Deflecting Palm deals that much damage to that source's controller. Needless to say, any time that you can make it so you don't take damage is great. And that's the reason why you still see people using fog cards to make it so that any damage coming through is totally negated. But the thing that is really good that makes this thing shine is it also is like, hey, you were trying to hurt me. Let me stop that and totally make you eat it. So you can do this as a really fun play to make it so that anyone who's trying to kill you can then die in return. But I remember this card originally was really hyped. Because when Emmerpool was run running the streets like crazy, this was like the only true way to stop it. Yeah, this card is pretty solid, honestly. I keep trying to make room for it whenever I make a Boros sort of deck with a Sunforger toolbox, but it just never ends up quite making the cut just because it only targets, you know, one single source and doesn't even remove the creature. But certainly this card can end games and does see play as a sideboard card in some Eternal formats, hence the reason why it is one of the top money cards here. Now, I guess we'll move on to the last card on the list here and going in a completely opposite direction from aggressive to just pure card advantage. We have Dig Through Time. Again, probably the reason this is still this high on the list is because it is a former standard and even somewhat Eternal formats money card. So we have a hefty instant that costs 8 to play, 6 and double blue, but it does have the delve ability, meaning that each card you exile from your graveyard as you cast it pays for one colorless of that cost. So this could conceivably cost as little as 2 mana. Now what it actually does is you look at the top 7 cards of your deck, put two of them into your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your deck in any order. I probably don't have to explain why this card is good. Card filtering, card selection, and card draw are all really good things. The level of filtering that this provides for the pretty low cost that it can possibly bring was pretty much unprecedented before this card was printed. This and Treasure Cruise were the bane of many formats for quite a long time. And while this isn't as straight-up good as Treasure Cruise it possibly is, Dig Through Time is still a pretty darn solid card. And like I said, two mana for that level of card selection, potentially, is way too good to pass up. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I mean, there are certain cards that can do what this wants to do at a cheaper cost, and it can be comboed out a lot better. But I mean, still, being able to find a piece that you need at when you need it is very key. Like this card costs eight. And I mean, being able to delve, this is a late game card. So I guarantee you at that point, you're really looking for an answer. And this is your saving grace. Now this comes to the part of the show where we rate the set to say how good this one stands. So we go from a scale from bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. Platinum pretty much being a set that's gonna be lifelong as long as magic itself is around. 
So Kyle, where would you say Khans of Tarkir falls for you? Well, on that kind of scale, I would probably give Khans a silver because it's not necessarily makes the cut with gold, in my opinion, because as you'll see with the money cards in our next episode, and as you see with some of the selections we've talked about here today, I actually, looking back over Khans of Tarkir, was sort of disappointed by the fact that there weren't nearly as many cool slash power cards as I remembered. However, that being said, I think there's plenty in here that uh, players who know their niche and really want to get into maybe some different things and alternative styles of play can really have a gold mine in this set. And just the virtue of it being the first wedge set ever kind of ups its value to me. And in terms of reintroducing that kind of thing to the game in a really big way. So overall, it wouldn't quite make the cut for gold in my opinion, but it's easily a silver. I have to agree with you on the silver scale. Um, like you said, with the wedge, they brought in new mechanics and they brought back some old ones. The legendaries themselves, I love the legendaries. And being able to like have that kind of style is really, really important. Yeah, I would agree too. I don't think this set is going to skyrocket in value at any point in the near future. I just think things will pretty well maintain where they are right now, which I have to say is actually a lot more friendly to budget players than a lot of sets that are out there. So that's our pool time for today. If the water felt just right, be sure to check out our first segment with our top 10 hidden gems that we found from Cons of Tarkir as well. So let us know if you agree with our rating. Be sure to let us know if you agree, disagree with our comments down below. And if that's not your style, be sure to tweet us at mtgthecardpool or email us at mtgthecardpool at gmail.com. I'm Stu Galetta. And I'm Kyle Robertson, and we'll see you next time at The Card Pool.